0: Gracious God, we have um, entered into these these stories uh, this morning, recognizing that uh, they're not just times to remember what happened in the past, but these stories, these claims about Jesus make a claim on us even here today. And we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we'll call... Uh, you will call each and every one of us to a deeper place of devotion and faith and to our great King. It's in his name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Well, today, on this Palm Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus Christ is King. And that he is the Messiah. He is the one that God sent, the anointed one who God sent to be the Savior of his people. The crowds who uh, cheered Jesus as he came into Jerusalem that final uh, week of his life shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the Son of David. And that, that term or that phrase, Son of David, is a messianic title because the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so we celebrate that Jesus Christ is the king, that he is the Messiah. But we also recognize as we read the passion narrative, we remind ourselves of this this startling truth that this king was betrayed, was beaten, was mocked, was stripped, and hung on a cross to die for our sin. We serve a crucified king. How do we respond to that today? How do you respond to that in your own life? That your king was a crucified king. Jesus clearly demonstrates on, at his entry into Jerusalem that he is a king. He is enacting a parable, if you will. He is showing the world that he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah nine. 9. Matthew points that out. When he takes this cult, he rides this cult, this young donkey, into Jerusalem. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, this is on page 4, if you want to look at that, Matthew 21. Matthew says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. That entire chapter, chapter 9 of Zechariah, is about God sending deliverance to his people, Israel. And that's what the people of Israel are looking for at this time. Uh, this is taking place during the Passover season, the highest uh, holiday uh, in the Jewish religion. So throngs of pilgrims would be in Jerusalem at this time. And they're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for a new Messiah to lead an insurrection and to overthrow the Roman government. And so they're crying out, Hosanna, he's come, he's here. And Jesus is, is, is fulfilling this prophecy saying, yes, you're right, I am the Messiah. He's showing that, that he is in control. This is important for us to remember in these, uh, this, this week where we celebrate and we remember what happened to Jesus in his final week, his final days, his final hours, to remember that Jesus is in complete control here of the situation. He is acting in accordance with his Father's will. This is all to fulfill the plan of salvation. Jesus is not a hapless victim, Jesus is not a failed martyr. There are not more powerful forces at work. No, he said, and we read it in the Passion, if he wanted to, he could have cried out to his father, and his father would have sent legions of angels to rescue him. Jesus is in complete charge. And after this happens, the Palm Sunday entrance, he goes into the temple, and he shows what kind of authority he has, because he cleanses the temple. But what he's doing here is he's provoking. He's provoking the religious authorities. He's bringing things to a head so that he can complete the mission that his father gave him to do. He is fulfilling God's plan of salvation. None of this is an accident. So he's the king. But he's the king who comes with a twist. He doesn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse a symbol of a victorious, conquering, strong military leader. But he comes on a donkey. This is not how the kings of this world like to project themselves, on a humble donkey, which was a symbol of peace. Listen to how David McCullough, in his book 1776, describes how King George III processed from St. James Palace to the Palace of Westminster in October 1775. Listen to this description. The guards and nobility preceded the royal chariot. Horse guards and footmen were decked in red and gold. Finally came the king in his colossal golden chariot, pulled by eight magnificent cream-colored horses with six footmen at the side. And then McCullough says this, I'm quoting here, No mortal on earth rode in such style. The royal coach weighed nearly four tons, enough to make the ground tremble when underway. Three gilded cherubs held high a gilded crown, while over the heavy-spoked wheels, front and back, loomed four gilded sea gods, reminding that Britain ruled the waves. It was as though when the king passed, the very grandeur, wealth, and weight of the British Empire were rolling past. That's how the kings of this world roll. That's how those who are in charge and in authority in this world project their power, their wealth, their might. They want people to take notice of that. But that's not how Jesus came. Jesus came in humility and in peace. These crowds were right to shout hosanna when Jesus came to acknowledge him as king. Hosanna means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And and John Piper in one of his sermons talks about how that phrase kind of evolved over time. Earlier in Hebrew history it was more of a plea, like Lord save us. It was a prayer. Something like you would you would you'd cry out As you're drowning and you need a lifeguard, help, save me. But then over time in Hebrew history, it evolved into a proclamation that the Lord has saved and the Lord is saving, like something you'd say when the lifeguard finally rescued you. It's a cry of joy and celebration, and that's what uh, the people are doing here. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, they believe that they have their Savior, their Messiah, who's going to deliver them from Rome. Hosanna, he is here. But then just a few days later, we know what happened. Some within this very crowd probably lent their voices to the crowd that shouted, as as we did here just a minute ago, crucify him, crucify him. Because he was not the kind of savior, he was not the kind of king that they wanted. That raises a question for us, doesn't it? Do we worship Jesus? based on who he really is? Do we worship Jesus as he's revealed in the pages of the New Testament? Or do we worship a projection of Jesus, who we want him to be? There are people who call themselves Christians, who name the name of Christ. Their idea of Jesus is that Jesus is sort of an A helper who will help me fulfill my my own potential, my own dreams, my own plans. Jesus is sort of an add-on, just sort of a spiritual boost when I need him. That's not the way that we see in the New Testament. The followers of Jesus, these apostles, these disciples, when they beheld Jesus' crucifixion and then when they saw him risen again, they gave their entire life to him because they knew what he had done for them. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's no longer I who live. When I look at the cross of Christ, abandon myself and give my life over to him, I'm not going to try to fit Jesus into my plans. Jesus is my plan. <laughs> Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. The cross shows us a different kind of power and a different kind of glory. The cross shows us the power of sacrificial love. Jesus has conquered billions of hearts and minds through his example of sacrificial love on the cross. His death, which is the forgiveness of our sin, which wins our forgiveness. It's amazing to think about this, that at this place of great shame, Calvary, at this place of great pain and suffering, God did his greatest work, reconciling people to himself. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences God forsakenness so that none of us have to. Jesus, when he died, he gave up his spirit. It says that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, the curtain that separated unholy people, sinful people, from a holy God. And now that separation has been done away with because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we can have fellowship with the holy God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This great work was done at the cross. And so the question is, how do we respond to a, a crucified Messiah, a crucified king. Well, there's a line from the hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, first and foremost. Love so amazing, love divine, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I have to keep the cross before me and remind myself that because he died for me, I shall live for him. I should live for Out of love. Response to his sacrificial love. Each and every day. Keeping the cross before me. And then we should respond by asking the question, Am I following the example of my Lord? Am I following the example of my King? Who is is giving himself. Who is conquering through sacrificial service and self-giving love. In our epistle from Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about having the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul's point here to the church of Philippi is that the body of Christ should operate this way: having the mind of Christ, not looking out for our own interest, not looking out for our own self promotion or power or glory, but rather looking out for the interest of of others, serving others out of love, understanding that this is what Christ has done for us. The crucified Christ is a continual challenge to our pride. This is how God saves us. God doesn't save us based on how smart we are. God doesn't save us, and and we want that. We would love it if, God saved the smartest people because the smartest people could boast. God doesn't save us as we look inward. This is American salvation. Look within yourself, deep within yourself. You'll find the divine there. Just get in tune with God there. You are God. You're one with him. God doesn't save us that way, looking inward. God doesn't save us based on how good we do or or, or how well we keep his rules or laws. God saves us at Calvary at this bloody scene of self-sacrifice and when we understand that that puts us in a place of humility at the foot of cross at the cross. It's a continual challenge to our pride and a continual reminder of his great love for us. Remember that this week keep the cross before you as we go through this week Monday Thursday Good Friday And then as we celebrate, one week from the day, you're looking forward to this, the great hope, he's not on the cross anymore, the great hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, the cross is foolishness to man who's perishing. But to those who by your grace are able to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus, it is salvation. We thank you for revealing yourself there on the cross, the challenge that places before us. I pray that each of us would cling to the salvation that you have demonstrated, that you have won for us, and that we would walk in the way of the cross in our life serving one another out of love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.